Just then, let me lead us in prayer and uh, we'll come and think about these words together. Just pray. God, thank you for this great year that you've given, um, all the challenges too that have come. And we ask that as we sit under your word at the close of the year, that you would even now speak to us uh, and by your spirit, uh, tell us the things that we need to hear, address us in our hearts and encourage us for the year to come. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife, Joyce, she's great at throwing things out. She has this ritual where she throws out something every week uh, in our house. Uh, it's a good thing. It saves our little place from getting all cluttered with stuff that lives most of its life in boxes anyway. And uh, I've been spared so far. I haven't been chucked out yet. Uh, it's a good thing. She's ruthless. Uh, she's good at making decisions, hard decisions about things that you really don't need, but you have them. I don't know if you have stuff like that in your place. She was good at um, just being ruthless. Last week, it was the soft toys that I gave her while we were dating. Gone. Uh, useless, really, now, because they're just collecting dust mites, and no one ever looks at those things anymore. And uh, it was my turn this week. I had a few boxes uh, to sort through. It was my turn. And this week, it was a box full of uh, notes and readers from my uh, university days, which I've never looked at since then. It's been more than t 10, 15 years now. I loved anthropology. I was an arts major. And anthropology was one of my uh, pet favorite subjects. It was the study of human cultures. Not useful for anything, really. But when I was younger, I, I dreamed about the possibility of spending my life possibly in ethnographic research where you sort of go deep in some jungle in the middle of some Pacific island somewhere, or you, you observe the rhythms of life on the beaches of Sao Paulo and Brazil around Carnival, or you go thinking about um, how modernity is coming to China through restaurant culture, or, you know, there's things that academics of that sort do. It's a total waste of life, but it's, it's kind of fun. And it was a serious three, those three were actually serious options that were post-grad study options for me if I wanted to go there. I had lectures in um, Chinese modernity and in Brazilian culture and in uh, the islands of Papua New Guinea. I went into teaching instead, which is a different kind of adventure. But there I was, cleaning out my old textbooks and old readers from my uni days, reliving my uh, anthropology dreams, and this classic text falls into my lap. Uh, the Rites of Passage. Van Genep, he's a French guy. Different cultures around the world have uh, different ways of marking the coming of age. Uh, I don't know if you've thought about that before. Uh, I remember when I was teaching my first school, these giant islander boys who I'd teach, and every summer they come back after the holidays with more of their bodies tattooed. Um, as they got closer to 16, 17, 18 years old and became men in their tribes in their own rights, they just had more and more of these crazy islander tattoos that were significant and they looked much, much better than the stuff which uh, the white kids were getting, basically. Our culture here in Sydney, Australia, we have a few fairly loose rituals, I suppose you'd call them as well. Uh, coming of age, rites of passages. Uh, we have the 18th birthday party and all the carry on around that. You've got the 21st party, you've got the bucks and the hens night. But there's no real hard and fast rules or you know, ceremonies about how those things have to be done. 
what uh, anthropologists are interested in is, is when there are those hard and fast rules, like coming of age, and there's a, there's a certain ritual that you do, certain words and things that are said and done, because, well, there's something to study there. There's something you can spend your research grant on and maybe write a PhD about. How you do rites of passage, though, what, what's symbolically there, it tells you a lot about your culture and, and what is important to your people. And you can strip away all the anthropological terminology and all that mumbo-jumbo, and, and still, almost anybody, anywhere, can tell you that transition points are really important in our lives. Like when you go from school to uh, further study, or you go from study to work, or you go from uh, work to retirement. Those transition points are really significant for people in how they think about themselves and how wider society treats you. The fancy uh, anthropological term for those transitions, uh, they call it entering into um, a liminal state. Uh, a limin, literally, a limin is a door frame. I don't know if you build things. and Basically, a limin is a, a threshold of a house. Uh, if you can imagine a building and picture standing underneath and in the middle of the entranceway, uh, the door frame, you're not inside the house, you're not outside the house. In that middle of the step where you're sort of stepping in through the door frame, you're in the limon, you're kind of in between. And no one really stays in a door frame for long. You're there for a split second most of the time because they're not comfortable places to stay. But where we find ourselves tonight, in between a year that's gone and a new year that's just about to start. This weekend, like, like every new year, could be unremarkable, I suppose, if you don't stop to make it significant. But I suppose it'd be a shame to let this opportunity pass. I don't care if you stay up tomorrow night to watch the fireworks or not. The real shame, I think, this time of year would be to miss the opportunity to take stock of how far... God has brought you in your journey thus far. And if you don't stop, you also miss the chance to think about what God might have for you as you move forward. So, uh, while I've got you here tonight and while we're stopping for a moment, let me point out to you that you're in a doorway right now, at the close of one year and the start of another. And while we're stopped, would you just for a moment think uh, so that you can head into 2019 with a purpose and a resolve that I think we ought to have as we, as we walk forward. Right, in our passage, which we just had read for us before, Joshua 24, you see God's people, Israel, at their sort of liminal point, at this point in their journey, in their lives. They, they've just entered in and taken hold of the land that God's been promising to give them for generations, and now they're here. They've got it. Uh, the story so far, which you may be aware of, but let me remind you anyway, uh, the Israelites were originally welcomed as a family into the country of Egypt during a great drought. There was no food anywhere. Egypt had food. They were welcomed in, not quite as refugees, but almost. Because one member of their family, Joseph, had risen to prominence in the government in Egypt, the rest of the clan, they get settled in, in a nice part of Egypt, to ride out the years of the drought that racked the known world at the time. And so the people survived. Uh, more than that, Joseph's family, the Israelites, they thrived and they stayed in Egypt and prospered and this tribal group, this little family, becomes this whole nation inside a nation of Egypt. 
And there become so many of them, uh, as you know the story, the Egyptian pharaoh and his court, they get worried about what to do with them all because, well, they're, they're a security risk. They're living in Egypt, but they're not Egyptians. They have their own God. They have their own language and their own culture, and there's more and more and more of them. And what do you do? They're seeing them as a threat, and the Egyptians, they impose sanctions, and they impose forced labor on the Israeli people. You kill two birds with one stone doing that. Oh, what's a more PC way they're trying to introduce that phrase? Um, you feed two birds with one scone doing that, which you're apparently not meant to do because gluten's not good for birds. But anyway, by enslaving the Israelis, you, you deal with the security risk and you also gain a huge, cheap labor force that you can use. And like everyone in bonded labor, they're treated badly and they cry out to God for help and for freedom, and God sends them their saviour, Moses, who, in the name of God and the power of God, inflicts ten terrible plagues on Egypt, each time with a message from God, let my people go so they can worship me in the wilderness. And after Egypt is ruined because of the plagues that's inflicted, after God has displayed his glory and his power for everyone to see, so Israel is freed from slavery in Egypt. And they cross that Red Sea and into the wilderness they go. And actually, the start of our reading summarizes the story so far quite well. In Joshua 24, starting at verse 2, uh, it covers a big part of the story, but it says this. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, they lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan. I gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there. I brought you out. And when I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea, but they cried out to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians, and then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. Quite a long time indeed, if you know the story. Forty years they spent wandering in the wilderness that God brought them to from place to place, but never to rest in a land that was their own. That promised land that all those generations ago, the great, great, great patriarch Abraham, God said to him that he would give him a promised land. And the story continues. Uh, where are we up to? Verse, verse 8. God through uh, Joshua says, I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you, but I would not listen to Balaam. And so he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. Now that's significant because the Jordan River, that was the boundary marker for the beginning of the promised land. This is it. They're finally here. And what happens? Second half of verse 11. The citizens of Jericho fought against you. I said everyone else. The Amorites, the Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, Jericho. Everyone, But God says, I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also, the two Amorite kings, you did not do it on your own sword and bow, 
I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from the vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. This, what we're up to, this is the last chapter in Joshua. Uh, In the first chapter of Joshua, they're about to set foot across the Jordan River, and it's been 24 chapters since of them taking the land. And more accurately, it's the story of God giving them the land, because it's been clear at every step of the journey that it's God who's given them the victory, often miraculously, even when they're grossly outnumbered and they have inferior technology, God prevails, not their own sword and bow and their own tactics. God fights for them and throws out these nations who've occupied the promised land before them. And by now, in Joshua 24, the fighting's done. The land's been divided up, uh, divvied up, and Joshua, who's been their, uh, their general and their leader throughout a whole lifetime of war and victory, Joshua is now an old man who's giving this uh, last speech, which is what we're reading. Uh, this is basically Joshua's last words to the nation before he's done for good. And God has a word for his people through Joshua, where God is calling his people in this pivotal moment to remember everything that the Lord has done for them. And when you look back, you're humbled. Because you see that it's God who's given you everything that you have. It's all of grace. And I wonder if we might have that same feeling tonight. Um, We've already shared some things we've been thankful for that God's given us. If I ask you to look back over the year that's gone, and maybe the years that have led up to this one, do you see the hand of God at work bringing you to where you're at even tonight? Do you see how he's given from his hand everything that we have? Sometimes in spite of us, and sometimes in spite of what we've tried to achieve through all the ups and downs, he's gone and done his thing with us, without us, through us, and for us. And what has your response been? As you're thinking these thoughts, are you humbled? Are you grateful? Are you angry? Are you even aware of God at work, that he's the one who the credit goes to? Now, the people of Israel have a choice to make. Uh, They've just taken over the land. They, They haven't done any living in it yet, though, it seems. What kind of tenants are they going to be? Joshua is calling them to make a conscious choice right here in in this passage to start this new chapter on the right foot or on the wrong foot, if that's what they choose. But he wants them to make a choice. He wants them to know that they actually have to make a choice about how they're going to be in this land that God's given them. Verse 14, Joshua urges the people, now fear the Lord, serve him with all faithfulness, Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond Euphrates, river in Egypt, and and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors uh, that they, they serve beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. 
And people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us out and our parents up from Egypt, from that land of slavery, and performed these great signs before our eyes. He protected us and our whole entire journey and among the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in this land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Now, what about us? We look back and we uh, remember the things that God has done for us. You, you think back and you consider how things are gone when you've chosen to go with God and you remember how things are gone when you've chosen to go without God in your life. And moving forward into uh, 2019, where are you going to plant your flag? Are you with God? Are you going to do it His way? Or have you got a better offer? I find this exchange that Joshua, that Joshua has with the people next really interesting. It's really honest. The people say, we're with God. We'll serve Him. How can we forsake Him now? After all the things he's done. No, we will serve him. But Joshua says in verse 19, you are not able to serve God. He is holy. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you, even after he's been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua says, well, you are witnesses against yourselves that you've chosen. And they said, yes, we are witnesses. And so again, again we're humbled. And so we should be. Because it's not like we're not aware of our weakness. Sometimes we have the best of intentions. And we still make dumb choices and forget God when it counts. This rings scarily true. You know it and I know it. Joshua knows it, and God knows it. God knows us and our proneness to wander away from him. Even so, my hope isn't in the power of my resolve, because I know my New Year's resolutions don't count for much if past experience is anything to go by. My hope is that what God commands he also enables and is gracious to supply. My hope is that by God's Spirit, He's breaking me out of my habitual sin and my turning away from Him and teaching me bit by bit that following Him is good. Little by little, every year, I hope God's changing me. And so tonight, totally aware of our weakness, I'm asking whether you would recommit yourself to walking humbly with God into 2019. And if that's something you'd like to do, can I urge you to go uh, one step further? Go, further? go further than just mental assent. Would you do something uh, tangible and physical tonight or tomorrow or the first day of the new year? Uh, this wasn't 
part of our reading, but if you look just a few verses on in this chapter, what you see Joshua and the people of Israel do is they get this big, great rock that's standing nearby. I don't know exactly how big or how many people it took to move the thing, but they push this big rock up against a tree and they set up this physical monument there uh, as a commitment, as a reminder of their commitment to God. And they say uh, down in round verse 27, this rock will be a witness. It has heard all the words we've said today and now it stands as a monument of our commitment to God. And I wonder if if you're serious about this, whether you'd be up for some symbolic monument in your own life. Don't pick a rock. <laughs> pick up something, a bit of jewellery. This uh, bracelet is the first gift that my wife gave to me about, I don't know, 12 years ago. Still good. One I made for a fellow partner a week, but, you know. Uh, or this ring that I got when we got married. Sometimes that kind of thing's helpful. I'm not particularly advocating getting yourself a tattoo, but that's just because I don't know many tasteful tattoo artists around. It's good enough for our islander friends, but... Maybe for you, you're not setting up something, but you're throwing something out. Take a leaf out of my wife's book. You might choose to physically throw away a physical object, something which represents what could be an idol in your life, and let that be a symbolic thing for how you want to start 2019, serving the Lord, not forsaking him. Let's not just talk the talk, let's walk the talk and see what God will do with us as we walk with him in 2019. Amen.